All right. Okay, this morning we're just going to share a little bit on some verses that God has given us uh, throughout the week last week. And uh, <clears throat> just some of the most intense and beautiful uh, truths that were given uh, to us. And they were so incredible. And I just want to share a little bit briefly this morning. And then I think for, for the week, uh, starting on Monday, we're just going to really go through these uh, truths that God has given us. So, first one I'm going to read is 1 John, the fourth chapter. word we want to really look at uh, this morning is the word ought. And we've gone into that last week in, in those two uh, Greek words that we've shared. And one of them is dai, D-E-I, and the other is of, ophi, aleuo. And uh, tremendous words, what they mean uh, in, in the Greek. But here, again, in 1 John 4, verse 10, it says this, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he who is love, God, loved us, and as a result of that love, sent his son, the propitiation for our sins. Notice it's ours, all those that have received him. Now, beloved, if God so loved us, and he did, he so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Now, this is the apostle, the beloved apostle, John. This is the one who in John 13, 23, laid his head on Jesus' breast. And we've said before, and the Holy Spirit has taught us. He heard every heartbeat of Christ toward him personally, which was, I love you, was his love. And when, he, when he's writing the epistles here in 1 John 4, verse 11, he's referring back to the same word that Jesus used in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, because it was ought, it, it behooved him. And we'll see that a little bit this morning. But God so loved the world, every human being, the mass of humanity, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, believing and receiving, wouldn't perish, but have eternal life. That's what he's referring to here in 1 John 4.11. And then when we read again in 1 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, 1 Corinthians 8, and I'll read those verses this morning. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, it says this, Now it's touching things offered unto idols, meaning we all have knowledge about idols and what they truly are. We know that we all have knowledge. We all understand these certain things. But knowledge puffs up. But notice what it says, and it's not charity here, it's love, it's agape. Love edifies, love builds up. And if any man think that he knows anything, meaning outside of, of who God is, love, and his own experience of that love, he knows nothing yet as he, look at what it says, as he ought to know. But if any man love God, and we know who loves God, well, in 1 John four nineteen, we love, why? Because he first loved us. He first loved us. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Again, now, this is brought out in such a beautiful way. Of course, we know, we know that we wouldn't have any knowledge of who God is in all of his fullness if Christ hadn't come. 
If he hadn't come and put on humanity, in John 1 and verse 14, it says that, that the word was made flesh. Uh, he, he was made flesh, humanity. And we've said before, this was, he was made in a human nature, not in a sin nature. But the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And what it really says in the Greek is he tabernacled. He was the tabernacle of the very presence of God. So when you look all through the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and when you see tabernacle or temple, they were all a type of Jesus Christ who would come. The fullness, the very fullness in Colossians 2.9, the fullness of the Godhead bodily. God the Father, God the Son himself, and God the Holy Spirit, all dwelling in him as that word in John 1 verse 1 that was in the beginning with God in, in John 1 verse 1 and 2, and then came out in creation and created everything. So amazing. And I, when we think of this, just think of us and who we are in Christ, that God created us in Christ to love us. <laughs> That's what he did. And that is brought out again in, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. God created us for him to love us, for us to receive it by faith a dependence and obedience, and then through that obedience to love him right back with his love that begets that love in us, and that's why we ought <laughs> to love one another. Again, if you, to understand today's message uh, that God is giving us, which is his counsel, then you, 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 we can refer back to the messages that were given last week. But also, I believe God's going to take us forward in a greater understanding of it uh, this coming week. So that we, we know this, that Jesus Christ, when he came, uh, when the word, Christ, that speaks of deity, the word became, no, was made flesh. He dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only uniquely one-of-a-kind begotten one from God. He was filled up with all that grace and truth is. See, he came as the completeness of God's ought. <laughs> because at times we know what we ought to do, and do we always do it? And the reason that we don't usually, for any of us that are in Christ, is because we're not functioning in his experiential love for us. Something got in the way of it. So we know that Jesus, he is, he is the very tabernacle, the very presence of God himself manifested, revealed, and declared. And that's what John 1 verse 14 is saying. But he came, and he was the fullness. And what that's speaking of there in John 1 and verse 14 is he's showing us that in all these types of the tabernacle, the temple, all these things, and how, they, and how the people should, or in other words, ought to do everything, it, it is showing that it was Christ himself who, who literally fulfilled all of that. This even goes into, when, and we'll get into this during the week in, in, a, in a much more deeper, deeper, deeper way. But in Leviticus, even in the fourth chapter, there where it talks about and, and there's, there's those, what we see here very clearly is those 35 verses in Leviticus, the fourth chapter, where it talks about 
how the priest would go in and offer a sacrifice for the sins of ignorance. That starts out in Leviticus 4 and verse 1, goes right to verse 27, and right to the end of verse 35. And so what this is teaching us is this, that Jesus, when he became that sin sacrifice in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, when he became that, he was paying not only for the sins of commission, what we're aware of, and what we don't do. So sins of commission, so we can understand this even in the types here, the sins of commission are what James 4 verse 17 says, to him that knows to do good. In other words, knows he ought to do good and does it not to him, it is what? It's sin, it's known sin. That's what, that's what happened with Adam. See, he knew better in the temptation. He knew better in, in Genesis 3, 1 to 6. He, he absolutely knew better, but he transgressed, meaning he knew it. It was known sin. That was obviously something that Jesus Christ paid for, for all those and only those that received the fact that Jesus Christ was, he propitiated first his father, again in Genesis 22 and verse 8, and then became the substitute for the sins of those that would receive him, thus being reconciled. That's the sins of commission. Knowing what I should do, but I don't do it anyways. I know what I should do, but I don't do it. And many times we've said, what is delayed obedience? It's disobedience. And what is disobedience? Disobedience is sin. And what is sin? In Psalm 51 and verse 4, sin is evil. We tend at times to think when we neglect God or when we just bypass what we know to be true and what we should do and put other things in place of it, well, the fact of the matter is, that's sin for, for all of us. And Jesus Christ paid for that. He dealt with the sin question in John 1, verse 29, the whole sin question, meaning he didn't pay for any of the angelic falls. But it became a revelation of the nature and character and essence of God himself through Jesus Christ. That's who Satan was rebelling against. That's who he was. And, and, and there he did get, in Ezekiel the 28th chapter, he did get a view of Christ. A manifested, because there's no created being, man or angel, that's ever seen God in all his fullness any part of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he did recognize that, that Christ in his pre-incarnate state was his creator. He should have done it. And that's Ezekiel 28 and verse 15. He was perfect in all his ways, meaning complete in his obedience and return of God's love that begot that love in him until iniquity was found in him. He no longer was submitting his will to what he knew to be true. And that's the sins of commission. But Jesus, when, when, he paid, when he was on the cross, he not only paid for what we know we should do, and what we ought to do and don't do it, but in sins of commission, but he also paid for the sins of omission, things that we're ignorant of and don't have a clue about <laughs> yet. Until the light comes, until the light expresses the truth, and we actually know it, now it's a choice. Will I obey it or not? 
But up until that point, it's called the sins of ignorance. And the priest would go in and offer a sacrifice for the sins of ignorance. But if you see in both cases, you will see here in Leviticus, the first chapter, all the way to the fourth chapter, right into the 16th chapter of Leviticus, what we're going to see there, what we see there, and needs to be brought out, which God will do. I, I know he's faithful and he'll do it throughout the week coming. Is that the sins of commission and sins of omission were dealt with by Jesus Christ. Now that in no way means that God gives grace for us to live in known sin. That's Romans 6, 1 and Romans 6, verse 15. Should I sin that grace may abound? Who Christ is and all his purity and all his truth. Does God ever give us grace to live in sin? What we, ought to, what we ought or what we should do and don't do. Does he ever give us grace for that? He never does. Now grace teaches us and grace is the only answer for sin in Romans 5.20 to bring out Romans 5 verse 21. That where sin abounded, grace will now much more abound. And that's the ought of God. That's Jesus Christ abounding in us. And that is the depth of his love for us. And so this brings it out here very beautifully here in these types. And they are so plentiful and they are so absolutely, absolutely beautiful. Now the only thing that we in Christ in Romans 8, 1 to 9, we're in Christ in Romans 8 verse 1. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ. There's none. Plenty in the flesh in Romans 8 verse 4, but would it be God condemning us when he doesn't even know us after the flesh? There's just not. There's just no condemnation. But the only thing that we can function in, when we don't function in the art and completion of God's love, is all we function in is lusts. Whether they're known, commission, or unknown in ignorance. Now, here's what God would have us to understand. In Psalm 130 and verse 3, it says, If God should mark iniquity, who could stand? Now, what that's bringing out is, if God, if God should not only hold me accountable for sins of commission and sins of omission, sins of ignorance, who could stand before him? I mean, who could? None of us could. Not one single one. That's why it was Jesus who stood in the gap in, Genesis, in uh, Ezekiel 22 and verse 30. He was the man in, in Isaiah 59, 16, 17, 18, down and through there. He was the man that stood in the gap. That's 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. There's one mediator between God and men. It is the man, Christ Jesus. He stood in our place with all of our sins on him, propitiating the Father first, number one, then dealing with our own sins, those that would receive him, so that now he would be our only place. And you know, our only place to function properly and have a proper experience is in God's love. That's why the Bible teaches us in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, and in, and in Hebrews 12, 4 to 29, he, that even grace is the first step of his love correcting us. He's never condemning us. He's not accusing us or criticizing us. He's correcting us. Because how, why can he do that? Because he ought to. Why? Because Jesus Christ won us to the Father through himself.
That's what 1 Timothy 2.5 is saying. And that's why there's no other name given them in, uh, under heaven whereby men must be saved in the name and the name there has to do with the person and the work that he's accomplished. Whereby men must be saved. You must, we must be saved or else we spend an eternity apart from him. Here's the truth of what God would have us to know. And, and again, in Psalm 130, in verse 3, if the Lord should mark iniquity, meaning, does he hold me accountable for what the light of his word has shown me? Yes, sins of commission. But will he hold me constantly in areas of forgiveness? No. Now, that might mean I may be functioning in sin ignorantly. And does he give me grace in that sense? No, but it's still prevenient grace. He's not yet holding me accountable till the light comes on and I go, oh my God. I was ignorant of that. I didn't know God. Well, here's the light of my son and what he completed for you in this particular area that he dealt with. (laughs) And then it's no longer an area of ignorance. Do you see? And this is why the Bible teaches us, and God has to constantly teach us. Listen, here's the facts. The thing that interrupts the depth of our intimacy, his deep desire to so fellowship with us, who cleared out everything between God and us so that he could do it. What gets in the way? What gets in the way of that? What I know to do and don't do it. You see, we don't struggle. There's not a struggle yet with sins of commission. I mean, there is. The only struggle is when I know what to do and I don't do it. That's the struggle. In Galatians 5, 17, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, so that these two things are contrary. Trying to have two thoughts. Well, I know I I should do this, but I'm not going to do it. So that you cannot do the things that you would. That's a, that's a terrible place for a believer in Christ to live in. The terrible place is known disobedience. So God will hold us accountable for the sins of, of, of uh, commission, yes. And that's what interrupts our fellowship with him. Now, God can't fellowship with sin. He cannot fellowship with sin. Habakkuk 1 and verse 13 says, His eyes are so pure, he cannot look upon iniquity. But thank God, his view of us in Job 36 and verse 7 is he sees us. He never removes his eye from the righteous. Now listen, that's who we are positionally. And, and what he's doing here in Amos 3, 3, can two walk together except they be agreed. God has agreed. There's an agreement between us and God fulfilled. And that's what Jesus Christ has done. He's, he's dealt with it forever. Christ has removed all distance positionally now between God and us. He has completely. But what interrupts the depth? Listen, what interrupts his desire to intimately love me? It's what I know to do good and don't do it. You see, we struggle. We don't struggle in what we don't know. We struggle in what we do know a lot of times, and don't do. Now, there can be a struggle. There can be a struggle in the sense of learning the sins of ignorance and, and, and bringing them into the light. Because even those sins of ignorance, when they're brought into the light, what are they still? They're still sin. 
But God, God doesn't hold us. He, he gives us prevenient grace. And what prevenient grace is, is my will hasn't yet submitted because I'm living in ignorance to the light of what's been accomplished by Christ in me through the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. And so there's prevenient grace. It's prevenient. My will hasn't yet received it. But boy, when the light comes, now, now it's no longer a sin of ignorance. It's, not, it's no longer a sin of omission. It becomes a sin of omission. It's the most dangerous thing for a believer to do is to think lightly of anything that they know they ought to do and don't do it. We, this was brought out this past week in John 15 and verse 22. See, John 15, verse 22, Jesus said that when, when he came, he did away with every excuse. He did away with every excuse. There's a cloak. That's what the cloak there means. It means he's done away with what we cover over to be an excuse why we don't do what we know we ought to do. Now, Jesus, again, he fulfilled all the ought. He's the full thought of God, and he's the full ought of God. He's done all of that, but I must submit to him. And so, beautifully, beautifully, the way that it's brought out here is that. In 1 John 4 and verse 10, herein is, herein is love. Who is love? God. Herein is love. Not that we loved God. See, right there, it's telling us what love is. It's God, and period. That's it. Here in his love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and sent his son, the propitiation for our sins. Now, we ought also to love like he loves us. Now, Jesus Christ has accomplished all of that. The sins of omission, complete sacrifice, and the sins of commission. He has dealt with all of it. Now, he's working that into us into our experience. See, a proper experience is based upon understanding a proper position. But then once the positional truth is brought out in the light, then in my experience, there's a choice that needs to be made. Will I obey or will I not? That's what 1 John 2, 1 says. My little children, you don't really see that you sin not. Really what it's saying, my little children, you don't have to sin because God has taught us faithfully here and faithfully through the word. And I, I know and plethora of other places he's done the same thing in teaching is that we don't have to sin. Sin is in the will. That has to do with disobedience or obedience. God, did you know that when Jesus Christ became the sin sacrifice in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, there wasn't one, listen, the slightest, slightest, smallest, what we may think, sin of ignorance, never mind commission, the sin of ignorance, omission. God couldn't bypass it? Not one? I mean, Jesus Christ would have had to die for that one thing. That one little omit, that thing we just blow off so easily and think that we now can have grace to do it. Boy, that's why obedience, obedience, and obedience is me receiving that love and turning it and giving it back to God. Because love, who God is, is our only protection. And he protects the Christian from the flesh in Romans 8, verse 9. 
And there's the temp- all the temptations there. Remember in James 1 verse 12, blessed is the man, man or woman, that endures temptation. For when he is tried, he shall receive the crown of life which the Lord has given to them that love him. The crown of life is this, simply having Christ as your head. It's like a crown of protection. You're thinking with him. In 1 Corinthians 2.16 and Philippians 2.5, we have the mind of Christ. Now, God tempts no man with evil. God cannot be tempted with evil in James 1.13. Neither he tempts any man. But we know every man is tempted when drawn, drawn away by his lust and, and, and by sin. And, sin can, and, le- and lust conceived, conceived brings forth sin. Sin brings forth what? Death, separation. Now, we can never be separated Ever. Now, when Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you, in a triple salutation, and bringing out Joshua 1, 5, and 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 8, he will never leave us positionally. He just wants that position to enter into my present experience. That's why experience is very... And this is where we're learning obedience. You you teach a child. They have to learn obedience. And then there's steps... (laughs) But there's always loving discipline and loving chastisement there. So that in having those things dealt with, that's what makes it necessary in Lamentations 3 and verse 27. It, it, it's a good thing for, for the youth to, to bear the yoke. It's a good thing when you're young. That means when first teaching, first thoughts about what light is, what sin is, and what we shouldn't do, when it first comes, boy, it's, we should instantly yoke, yoke up with him. That's submitting my will to him instantly. And that's what Jesus was saying in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30. All you that labor, why do we labor? We struggle with sin. See what that says? So beautiful. All come unto me, because I am the ought. I have fulfilled what you should do, and I'm, I'm the way that you can receive it and obey in it and walk in it. Come unto me, all you that labor. What are you labor? You're struggling. What are you struggling? I know what to do, but I don't do it. That brings out math, uh, Romans 7, verse 12. The law is holy, just, and good. Was then that which was holy, just, and good wrong or bad for me? or even? No. God gave it to show me that I can't do it. There's a new area. I was ignorant of it. I thought I could do this. And oh my God, the whole time I was thinking that I could do it, it was ignorance and sin. Now I come into the light and I say, oh my God, this area, Christ fulfilled. Oh, now it's a choice. Will I submit my will? That's commission. Will I or won't I? See, obedience is critical. The enemy does not want us to obey God in the smallest things. Because if I can't obey him in the small things, how can he trust me with the bigger things? How? Nothing replaces obedience. Nothing replaces, nothing replaces his love that protects us. That's how he does it experientially. See, the enemy can't touch me in my position in Christ, and this is 1 John 5, 18b, the wicked one touches us not, but this is where he goes after the experience. Hopefully, him on enemy's side, 
being the angel of light in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, and he wants us to be his ministers and live in ignorance. He wants to do everything he can to keep us in ignorance. But he does everything to keep the desire and finished work of Christ in us positionally from entering into our experience through us knowing what to do and we don't do it. We make all kinds of excuses. And you know what love did? It did away with every single excuse. It did. It did away with it. Now, what that means is he's done away with every excuse for me knowing what to do when I say, well, this is the reason why I can't do it. He did away with that. And also, he did away with me blowing it off, blowing things off. He's done away with that. But also, here's the beauty of this. When it says that love, who God is, through Christ manifested by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Word, what he's telling us is this, that when the enemy tries to tell you who you're not and tries to make your failures and sins who you are, to give you to the excuse not to trust God, Jesus did away with that. Isn't that awesome? He's done away with all excuses on both sides, hasn't he? Mine and disobedience and the enemy, what he accuses me. The disobedience of commission in Revelation 12 and verse 9, he deceives the whole world. Now, he does that in two ways, through sins of omission, but more so sins of commission, what, he, what people know to do. He deceives them. And that's what happens when I rely on the flesh and don't obey God. I function just like the world. Then everything about the world now, I think, is what God is doing is my life. Where I go, what I do, what I choose to do. God help us. God help us. And he does, and the help comes through humility. It just comes through humility. That's, that's the way that God does it. So, it's either I function... In the exchange, when we think about this, this is the proper exchange life. There's teaching out there that, that has taken the, the name, the exchange life, to, to teach that you no longer have a fleshly nature. That is absolutely wrong. The exchange life simply means this, that Christ who is my life, in 1 John 5.11, he is my life in Colossians 3 and verse 4, He's that very life. And when I submit to what he's accomplished in me, for me, in my place, now I have that life to exchange fellowship with him. You know, do you ever notice this? If my fellowship, if my view is vertical in my own personal life with Christ, then there's something, there's something that will never allow me to replace face-to-face -face fellowship with the body of Christ as much as possible. There is no two ways about that. So either I function in the protection of God's love, and when I don't, when I don't submit my will, then I function in all these lusts and all the same struggles come back again. Usually what happens, usually what happens for any of us, the easiest thing for us to do is to forget God. Forget his love. To leave it in Revelations 2 and verse 4, you left your first love. Now, that, that is what Galatians chapter 5, 1 through 14 is teaching. You don't leave his love positionally, you never can. But experientially, experientially, this is why the enemy, he goes after the experience. And when my will isn't submitted to the protection of God's love through the obedience of Christ that was fulfilled for me in my place and is now mine, then what? 
Then there's just the lust. Who's the father of all the lust patterns? You know, sometimes we think lust is like lust is, is, is like sexual perversion or all these other things. It's far more than that. It's just simply living in the pride of self-importance. Think, to think that God would give me grace to put myself above the Word, the body of Christ, Him personally. And you can always tell if my vertical is right with God, my own personal, is because that's going to cause me to deeply desire fellowship with others. To not only be a joint that supplies, not only a joint that supplies. You know, that's even brought out in first, I believe it's first Samuel 20, verse 18. Uh, there, David's seat was empty. Meaning the place that he should fill, he wasn't there to fulfill it. So there was a void there. There was a void. And that's not to say that we don't know. And God makes it known to us, doesn't he? I mean, honestly, does he not really, for any of us, make his will very plain for us? He does. He makes it very plain for us to see. And so, but when it's not, then I function in the flesh, in Romans 8, verse 4, who's the father of every lust pattern who daddies me in that lust, in John 8, verse 44. You know, lust means this, I, I think myself above others. That's Philippians 2, 3. Esteem others better than yourself. Really? Yeah, that's right. Philippians 2, 4. Look not on your own things, but you ought, there's ought really in that verse, think on the things of others. Philippians 2, verse 21. For, for all men seek their own, their own things, not the things of Christ. So when we function in the flesh, experientially, not experiencing his love where, where our proper position is, our proper standing, based upon Romans 5, 1 and 2, then what? We function in these lusts. And Satan, in John 8, verse 44, he's the father of all these lust patterns in the flesh that we're no longer of. We're no longer of. You see, he's teaching us through the separating process in Hebrews 4, verse 12, where the word comes in and separates the soul. You see, I can take all the blessings of God that he's blessed me with, and the enemy can use those same blessings to create distance now between me and God. They, be, they accrue to themselves a more important place than having my place where I should be. And what is that? It's the pride of self-importance. It truly is. You know, the principle, as we wrap this up this morning, the principle of all false worship, listen to this one, the principle of all self-worship, that's the flesh that's in the believer, that principle is self-worship. The enemy's always telling you, you know what? You don't have to do this. You know what? You, you, you can blow that off. Okay, does anyone realize, and do we all realize together, did Jesus Christ blow off one single thing of our sins? Did he blow it off? Whether it was ignorance, omission, or commission? Did he, did he even bypass one of them? Well, if he did, he never would have finished the work. But you see, he did that for us. He did. He did that for every single one of us. And this is going to be brought out really really, throughout the week. And, and uh, in, in, in a way, I believe that God would have us to know. So as we wrap this up this morning, this is what 1 John 4, 10 and 11 is teaching us, that word ought. 
that God sent his son to be a propitiatory sacrifice to himself, dealing with the sin question, not personal sins, sin question, so that he could be the substitute for the sins of all who would receive him, thus being reconciled. God sent him. But, and because Jesus Christ was that propitiatory sacrifice in Genesis 22 and verse 8, it says that God would provide himself a sacrifice. And who is that? That's his precious son. That was his precious son. This is brought out in all the types here in, in Leviticus chapters 1 through 4 and all the way to 16 in scores of other places in the scriptures. But God sent his son to be the propitiatory sacrifice, first and foremost to God the Father, and then for our sins being dealt with so that we could obtain, through absolute grace, no merit on our own, eternal life for us, through everything that he suffered, all his sufferings and death. Think of all the sufferings in his whole life, 33 and a half years before he was cut off in Isaiah 53 and verse 8. You know, that's where most of us meet our prime. And he was cut off as that propitiatory sacrifice. And to think that he would go through all those sufferings and even death in Philippians 2, 7 and 8. And then to think that God would give us grace to live in known sin is utterly, it's just such an evil thought. It's an evil thought. Now, we're not the evil, remember. <laughs> we are positioned in Christ. But that's just a wrong, false experience. It's a false experience. So God sent his son, as we close this morning, to be a propitiatory sacrifice for our sins so that we could obtain eternal life through his sufferings and death. That's the word that God the Holy Spirit told the beloved apostle in 1 John 4.11 to write. Do you see? I know that I love God based upon the measure that I love every other single person. And if I do, that means I'm functioning in known, fulfilled obedience. I've returned his love. You, you'll know, you'll know. If Christ is first in your life individually, then, then where do we experience the abundance of life in John 10, 10a. We all have that life in John 10, 10b, I should say. We all have that life, but to have it more abundantly is when we gather together. And that's when the enemy will bring in every single excuse, cloak that you think that you think that we, and we may think that we can cover ourselves with. But Jesus did away with it all. Remember? He did away with the excuse of living in known sin. But and he all, when then when we deal with it, and that's deception. But then when we deal with it, he's done away with the excuse of the enemy through his accusations against us. Do you see God's love? And that's Revelation 12, 9 and 10. You see God's love is everything about it is protection. Everything about it is protection. So he used the same word that Jesus used in John 3:16 where we ought, in 1 John 4, 11, he used the same language that his Lord and Master used in John 3, verse 16. We ought also to love one another. Now, can I love you if I live in disobedience experientially with God? Can, is there any love flowing in me for you? No, why? Because it's about me now. It's not even about God in my own life. 
We ought also to love one another. For those who are the objects of God's love, and that's who we are in Christ, by the way, ought to be, we are the objects of his love, and we ought to be those objects and to know ourselves that way. And if God has loved our brethren just like the, us in Christ, just like he's loved us to such a degree that he would have his son suffer the way that he did and then die the death on the cross, the most brutal death you could think of, of torture and death, to think that, to think that, to such a degree that his love go as to send his son to die for them when they were without strength in Romans 5, 6, when they were actively sinning in 5, 8, and were their enemies in 5, 10, if God loved me that way, ought I not to love others? Yes, we ought to love them too. We ought to. And if we are in that same love, the obligation is still greater. If God loved was so great a love when they did not love him, but were enemies, this is Romans 5.10, then we should, we ought to love them now because they are God's most, they are in God's most loving, affectionate, unbreakable embrace. That's our position. So they themselves are ours. Did you know that? Did you know that I am here Listen, we're all here because you have, a, each of us has a measure of love that God loved us and given us a measure to love each other. Did you know that? We're all here for God to love us and for us to love each other. So it makes it so important. Nothing, nothing. Don't let anything replace the word of God in your life. Don't you let a thing. And, and God would never give you blessings to replace that, that word. And to replace hearing it, he would never do that. He would never do that. And so again, we ought to love just like we did, like God loved us. So if God loves them freely when they were unlovely and under the same circumstances that we were when we were loved, freely by his grace, then we ought to love and to continue to love. And you know, you know that we are, we're, we're saints, by the way. That's not a word you should shy away from and be embarrassed for. A saint is simply one who's in Christ. They've been separated to the holiness that Christ has accomplished on his part for us. It's separated. We're sanctified. We're saints. Yes, we are. There's not a certain class that are above anybody or below anybody. That's a system that was dreamed up by Satan. And we, uh, we won't go into that system at this particular time, but that system will be dealt with. It's brought out in Revelation, the 17th chapter, right through the 19th chapter. But here, again, is this as we close. And we ought to love and continue to love the saints. Now listen, we're to love them. Now, when God saw me without strength, weak, actively sinning, and his enemy, did it stop him from loving me? No. Then we ought to love those that are in Christ, though there may be something in their temper or their conduct that is not the equal of their character in Christ. When should the love stop? 
Now, there's a lot of, there's, there's loving discipline in how a local assembly should even function, which is tremendously missing too, by the way, as much as forgiveness is. And of course, we know that that is love. We're to love just like them. And God in Romans 5, 1 and 2 is to be, is to be imitated. We're to mimic him like a little child will mimic their parents through learning, loves, loving discipline and training. And so then we know how to walk. And so his love is so great. And his love is our protection. And Father, we do thank you so much as we, as you are just bringing this out to us, because you have to, Lord, because we, we don't even know aught. We know nothing. We don't know a single thing without you, Lord. And we can't do anything in John 15, 1 to 5, apart from Christ. But yet I can do all things. In Philippians 4 and verse 13, don't dare say you can't obey. Don't use the excuse not to, to not obey. Don't use the blessings of God to keep you from doing what you know that you should do and putting others and things and places in place of Christ. We should never do that. And God will make that real to us, not with accusation or condemnation or any kind of accusatory words, but in the conviction and depth of his love in 1 Corinthians 11, 31 and 32, so that we won't live in the condemnation that has to do with the world of those that are deceived, those that are deceived, and those who live battling the accusations of the enemy the lies, and that's another excuse that Christ has completely dealt, dealt with and done away with. And thank you so much this morning, Father, for your loving counsel to us this morning. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.